0: Please have a seat, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning as we turn once again to this great letter, and we pray that as we uh, concentrate, you would help me as all as we listen, that you might shape our church to be the church we are called to be for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. So please do have your Bible open there at 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're in verses 17 to 25 this morning. And over the past few months, we've been working our way through this wonderfully practical and extremely helpful letter that the Apostle Paul sent to his friend and his co worker Timothy. I'm sure you remember the situation into which this letter was sent. This church, this congregation in Ephesus, which had started off so well, was now going through a very rocky patch. Uh, The problem was that some false teachers were troubling the church, and people were starting to drift away from the faith. And so Paul decided to send one of his best co-workers, Timothy, to go and be the minister there in Ephesus. And it's Timothy's job now to try and steer the church in a better direction, bring them through these difficulties and bring them into a better place as a church. And so to help him know how on earth to go about doing that, Paul sends Timothy this letter, which we call 1 Timothy, And it is a letter that is crammed full of godly, biblical advice to Timothy about how Jesus would have him run the church there. If you want to know what the ministry of a church really should look like, there are few better places to turn than to Paul's letters to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy, and then also the letter to Titus as well. These three letters, we call them the pastoral letters. Really, they're there to show us how Jesus wants his church to be led. And the fifth chapter of First Timothy, Paul is focusing upon relationships within the church. A very practical concern, isn't it? As a church family, how should we relate to one another? How should we treat one another how should we try and care for one another that's what the fifth chapter is really all about and you remember right at the start of the chapter paul said to timothy do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers older women as mothers and younger women as sisters in other words Paul is saying treat the church like your family because the church is your family and then in verses 3 to 16 you remember how Paul focuses on how the church should care for its most needy members in particular those who are widows and then the final section of the chapter is all about elders How should the church relate to its elders? And you remember, this is not the first letter that Paul has spoken about elders. Back at the start of chapter three, he gave us there this list of qualifications for being an elder in the church. The elders are those chosen and set apart to lead or rule the church, And that includes the task of teaching God's word to the church. It is, of course, an extremely important job. And and so Paul has already spent some time in the the letter telling Timothy what kind of person is cut out for that role. That's chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now the question arises how should the church relate to its elders? What should that vital relationship between the elders and the rest of the church family look like? And that's what Paul is describing in these verses that we turn to this morning. He looks at it under three different themes, and we'll look at them one by one. So firstly, when it comes to relating to elders, Paul says, show them honour. Show them... Now you perhaps... Remember that back at the start of chapter three, Paul described the office of overseer or elder as a noble task. It's a high calling. It's a wonderful privilege to be called by God and to be set apart by the church as an elder. No one should underestimate the importance of that role in the life of the church. And yet, Paul says, That's not to say that just because someone has been made an elder in the life of a church that automatically they should be shown honor for that. Notice, Paul adds an important qualification, doesn't he? Look at what he says at the start of verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. You see, an elder should not expect to be shown honor by the church family, if they're not fulfilling that role to the best of their ability. And so the first application of all of this is to those of us here who are already elders in this congregation. Paul is saying to us, first of all, make sure you rule well. As you seek to lead the church in all the ways in which you need to do so, be faithful in that calling. You've been assigned a noble task, so do it as best as you possibly can. Now, what does that look like in practice? Well, we can turn elsewhere in the scriptures and see what it looks like in practice. In 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter gives us an outline of what it's gonna look like for the elders there to rule the church well. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, when the apostle Paul was speaking to the elders of this same Ephesian congregation of which Timothy was now the minister. In Acts chapter 20, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And so to the elders amongst us, remember that you've been given this noble task to fulfill. And so be encouraged to do it to the very best of your ability, that together we might lead the church here well. And God willing, as we do that, Paul says to the congregation as a whole, show them honor. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And again, what does that look like? Well, the writer to the Hebrews gives us a a handy little summary of that. In chapter 13 and verse 17, he writes there, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. On behalf of all the elders, let me say thank you to you guys for being the kind of congregation that makes it a joy to be an elder here. It really is. And we don't take that for granted, but you see from these verses, don't you, this is how Jesus wants the church to operate. On the one hand, the elders seeking to rule the church well. And then in turn, the rest of the church family showing honor to those who are elders so that they can do their job with joy. And then notice as well that in the rest of verse 17 and into verse 18, Paul then talks about a particular type of elder. Now, so far, he's been talking about elders in general, but then he refers, quote, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And you see here, Paul is saying there are basically two types of elder in the life of a local church. There are elders who we might say in a a more general sense are given the responsibility of leading and ruling the church. Sometimes you'll hear these guys referred to as ruling elders. And then also within the eldership, there are those who are set apart particularly for this task of preaching and teaching the church. And basically he's talking about what today we normally call ministers or sometimes we call them teaching elders. And the question here is, well, how should the church show honor particularly to those elders who are ministers or teaching elders in the life of the church? And Paul says one way that that happens is by the church paying them to do their job. And in verse 18, Paul shows this is a a biblical principle. He makes that point by giving two biblical references. Uh, The first is from the Old Testament. The second is from the New Testament. The first is from Moses. The second is from Jesus. Firstly, Paul says, "'For the scripture says, "'You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain.'" Now, this is the only time, of course, you're allowed to compare your minister to an ox. I think generally you'd be best to avoid uh, doing that. But you see, Paul is bringing in this quotation from the Old Testament law. It's from Deuteronomy. And strangely, it's a law about how to care for farm animals. Back there in Deuteronomy, Moses is saying to the people of Israel, when your animal your ox or whatever, is doing its work for you, treading out the grain, don't put a muzzle on it. If it's working for you, let it be free to eat as well as it does that work. As it were, pay the ox as it is working. And surprisingly, Paul says, that Old Testament law about how you should care for your farm animals is a good principle for how the church should relate to its teaching elder. He spends his time working on sermons and giving sermons and doing the rest of the pastoral work that he has to do as well. So Paul says, pay him as he does so. Give him what he needs to live on so that he can devote himself fully to that role of preaching and teaching God's word to the church. And Paul makes exactly the same point in 1 Corinthians 9, although he expands upon it there. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. And then he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then to back up that point, Paul reminds us how Jesus also says the same thing. The quote here is from Luke chapter 10. Jesus is sending out his 72 followers on a preaching mission around various towns. And he tells them there, as they go about preaching the gospel, it's fine for them to accept payment from those to whom they minister, because, as Jesus puts it, the laborer deserves his wages. And once again, thank you for being that kind of church that lives up to this pattern that Paul is putting before us here. As I serve as your minister here, as a a teaching elder in this congregation, it's my job to sow spiritual things amongst you, bringing God's word to you week by week. And as I do so, thank you that you guys give generously and faithfully so that I and my family can be provided for materially, which means that I can devote myself full-time to this work. Thank you for showing honor in that way. And keep praying that I and all the elders here would lead the church well and teach the church well for the good of the whole church family here in Cromlin. That's the first way to relate to elders, says Paul. In these ways, show them honor. And then secondly, and more briefly, the second thing is this. Hold them accountable. Hold them accountable. Now we've just seen, haven't we, elders have to be shown honor if they lead well and teach the church faithfully. But that doesn't mean that elders are perfect, not by a a very long way. And so in the next few verses, Paul speaks about holding the elders accountable. And he gives three brief words of advice in these next three verses about how to do that. And firstly, he says, do so with caution. With caution. That's verse 19. Now, Paul knows the church is a family, as he spelt out in the opening words of this chapter. But the church is not always a happy family. There can be fallings out like in any family. And sometimes a a member or members of a church can have a gripe with the elders, rightly or wrongly. And it may be the case that someone in the church makes an accusation against an elder. Maybe someone one Sunday will sidle up to Timothy and say to him, Timothy, such and such an elder said this to me. Or I saw such and such an elder doing this that they shouldn't have done. It's the kind of thing, isn't it, that happens in church life, sadly. And when it does, Paul says to Timothy, proceed with caution. He says to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, be cautious. Bear in mind that this might be a false accusation raised by someone in the church who's got a grudge against that elder for some reason. Uh, They're just seeking to undermine that elder. Someone in the church has fallen out with an elder, so they they spread gossip about them to try and get rid of them. And so don't entertain those things unless that accusation is backed up by other witnesses in the church family. Be cautious when this kind of thing happens, says Paul. But then what what if it turns out to be true? What if one of the elders really has been acting in an inappropriate way. And again, sadly, it's the kind of thing that happens, isn't it? What if you challenge that elder about this and they refuse to repent of it and the situation continues? Well, Paul says to Timothy, as you seek to hold them accountable, do so with courage. That's verse 20. Paul says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And hard as it may be, if an elder is continuing with a sinful behavior and is refusing to repent of that, he must be rebuked in front of the whole church. And of course, it's gonna be very courageous for Timothy to do that, isn't it? And yet that is what he must do if he's going to lead the church faithfully. Now remember that in Ephesus, this was a very live issue. Because we know that some of the elders in that church were the ones who were spreading the false teaching and destroying the church from the inside. And so timid Timothy is going to need a great deal of God-given courage to hold these elders to account in front of the whole congregation. And as he does that, he must make sure he does so with consistency. That's verse 21. Now consider this. What if the, the wayward elder in question is someone who Timothy has never really got on with at all. They just rub each other up the wrong way. There's going to be the temptation for Timothy to just jump at the chance of sticking the boot in and rebuking this person publicly without really looking into the matter. Or on the other hand, what if the elder in question is Timothy's closest friend in the church? In that situation, he's going to be tempted to go easy on him. Let him off the hook, even though he's persisting in this sin. And Timothy has to avoid doing either of those things. He must avoid both prejudice and partiality. He needs to be consistent as he holds the elders to account. And that's what verse 21 is about, isn't it? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels... I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. And you see, Paul reminds Timothy, heaven is watching you as you lead the church and as you serve there. God and Christ and the angels are your witnesses, as it were, looking over your shoulder in your ministry. This is how high the stakes are. And remember that when it comes to this very difficult matter of holding the elders accountable. Do so with caution and with courage and with consistency. And of course, as well as holding the other elders to account, Timothy must hold himself to account as well. And notice that in verse 22, Paul tells Timothy there not to take part in the sins of others, but to keep himself pure. He's saying, hold yourself accountable as well, Timothy. And then that brings us to verse 23, doesn't it? Which seems quite out of the blue and is a a puzzling verse. All of a sudden, Paul says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, what on earth is that verse all about? And why is it suddenly there? Well, Paul has just told Timothy to stay pure. So there's the theme of purity in the preceding verse. But if you cast your mind back to the start of chapter 4, you remember that there were some false ideas of purity going around the church in Ephesus. That's what the false teaching was about, in essence. Part of it was giving these false ideas of what it meant to be pure. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but we saw there, didn't we, that It was the kind of teaching that forbids what God allows. From the start of chapter 4, we know, for example, the false teachers were forbidding marriage and they were requiring abstinence from certain foods. And I think that what is happening here in verse 23 is that Paul, having just urged Timothy to be pure, then throws in this aside to make it clear that he doesn't mean the kind of so-called purity that the false teachers were talking about, the kind of purity that forbids what God allows, laying upon people unbiblical requirements, going further than the word of God actually says. And in that context, Paul says to Timothy, you don't need to just drink water. A little wine is fine. And Timothy, that will help you with your stomach ailments it was a a common treatment for such problems in those days so hold the elders accountable Paul is saying do so with, with courage and with caution and with consistency and hold yourself accountable as well and then thirdly and finally and very briefly when it comes to elders Paul says choose them wisely Choose them wisely. So show them honor, hold them accountable, and choose them wisely. And in the life of any church, the time will come when it's necessary to choose some new elders. Now, they're going to have to do that in Ephesus because it appears that Timothy is going to have to kick out some of those wayward elders. And so as Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, Timothy is probably looking around the congregation and he's thinking to himself, who should we have as new elders here? Of course, Paul has given him the the qualifications earlier on to help him as he considers that question. But Paul's advice here is very simply, choose them wisely. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, that is, ordaining people to the office of elder. Paul is saying, take your time. Don't rush into that decision about who should be an elder in the church. And Paul explains why in verses 24 and 25. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What it means is this. There are some people whose sins clearly rule them out from being suitable as an elder in the church. Now, maybe they profess to be Christians. Uh, Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. And yet, as you look at that profession of faith and as you look at their Christian walk, you, you see that their Christian walk is really all over the place. There's immaturity in their Christian life. They're hit and miss when it comes to church. Maybe there's some situation in their life which is questionable. And of course, those people are ruled out straight away because they don't meet the qualifications of chapter three, verses one to seven, at least not yet. And God willing, as he works in their life, hopefully one day they will live up to those qualifications. But at the moment, they don't, Paul says. And so such people with those conspicuous things in their life cannot be an elder in the church. And yet he also says that there are other sins which are not so obvious, Maybe a, a bad temper, which only erupts occasionally. And when it does so, it, it's usually behind closed doors at, at home. Or maybe it's an unwillingness to forgive people. And it only manifests itself when that person is sinned against. Maybe it's a fascination with money. And it masquerades as being hardworking and industrious. Paul says some sins are not so obvious on the outside. They only appear later on. And on the other hand, the same is true of good works. There are some good and godly behaviors that are clear to see. And yet Paul is saying that there may be a man in the church who people don't really notice because he's a quieter sort of chap. And yet there is a deeply impressive, albeit quiet, godliness about him and he's easily overlooked by people who don't know him very well but actually he's every inch of chapter 3 verses 1 to 7 John Stott puts it like this he says attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses whereas unprepossessing people often have hidden strengths someone else has written unworthy men might be chosen whose moral culpability lies deeper than the surface and worthy men whose good actions are not in the limelight might easily be overlooked. And so Paul says, choose wisely when it comes to new elders. Take your time. And over time, the right candidates will become apparent. Well, for us as a church, here in Cromlin, the time will come at some point in the future when we will need to look to appoint new elders. I don't know when, but that's obviously going to happen sooner or later. And when that day comes, the letter of First Timothy will give us a great deal of excellent guidance about how to choose wisely. And for some of you guys out there, we trust that, God willing, at some point in the future, you will be elders in this congregation and rest assured we're not going to rush you into that we'll take our time like paul says and we'll give opportunity for your godliness and your giftedness to mature so that in time it will become obvious to the whole church here that you're a wise choice for this noble task of being an elder in the life of the church And may God always help us to get that key relationship between the elders and the rest of the church right. And this, says Paul, is how you do it. Show them honour, hold them accountable, and choose them wisely. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way in which your word tells us how Jesus runs the church, and we thank you that he is our chief shepherd, and yet he raises up under shepherds, elders, overseers, to lead and look after the church and to teach the church. Father, we focused on this role of being an elder in the church this morning, and We bring now before you all the elders in this congregation. We pray for Ernie and for David and for Andrew and for myself. And humbly we ask that you would help us to lead the church well and to teach the church well as we seek to fulfill this noble task that you have given to us. And we pray that that relationship between the elders and the rest of the church family would remain strong and remain healthy giving honour where honour is due. Father, we pray for the elders that we would be held accountable and that we'd hold ourselves accountable. Help us not to drift into sin. Help us to remain pure. And Father, we pray that you would be working amongst us as a church family to raise up amongst us and to bring to us those who will serve as elders in the years to come. As a church, we pray that you'd give us great wisdom in this. And help us to know when and who to choose for this role. And as we do so, may it be for the good of the church and for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.